Hello and welcome to the We Are Geeks, a Nightmare on Elm Street podcast from wearetessellate.com, where every Friday we will be covering a new installment in the classic horror franchise. Warning, this podcast contains strong language and spoilers throughout. The We Are Geeks podcast series is published by We Are Tessellate, and it is a completely independent podcast series. We Are Geeks is not affiliated with any of the rights holders of the films referenced, and no infringement is intended. Come to Freddy. that in for the whole film oh yeah we died to say that uh we're going yeah we're going uh look how much you peeked over there on the screen uh welcome to geeks our nightmare on elm street franchise special podcast thing um every week we're going through a new uh episode of the well say new we're going through an episode of the nightmare on elm street franchise starting with the original way back in 1984 all the way through to the reboot in 2010 this week wes craven's New Nightmare uh, came out in 1994. Joining me on this journey, Alexander Chard. Hello. <laughs> you doing? You got your energy on today. Oh, that film gave me a boost. Oh, nice. Uh, I'm your host, Al White. So here we are, part seven. Hopefully, you're watching these alongside with us. Um, directed for the first time since Nightmare on Elm Street by the creator of the series, Wes Craven. He's back. Written by Wes Craven, starring Wes Craven and whole bunch of people. Heather Langenkamp, from, uh, who played Nancy in part one and part three. Uh, we have her playing herself. Um, we have, uh, obviously, Robert Englund playing both Freddy and a different type of Freddy and himself. Yep. Um, and then a whole bunch of people who are actually playing themselves in different roles, such as Robert Shea, um, other producers at New Line Cinema. John Saxon. John Saxon playing himself as well, but also playing whatever Dad. dad's Nancy's name is. Dad, yeah. I've forgotten his name. Uh, we have Tracy Middendorf in her first role as Julie, um, and what's her husband is uh, Chuck, isn't it? Is that Chuck? Matt Winston. Yep, that's Chuck. And then her son is Dylan, who is played by Miko Hughes, who you noticed straight away from... Kindergarten Cop. He was the little kid in Kindergarten Cop that says, uh, boys have a penis and girls have a vagina. That's correct. Which is accurate, yeah. It is accurate. You can't fault him for it. <laughs> Um, I didn't notice that at all. I haven't seen Kindergarten Cop. Oh, I thought time. you were going to say the boys have a penis and girls have a vagina. My experience in life, uh, people keep their pants on, Alex. So. Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, when was the last time you saw Kindergarten Cop? Um, I don't know. It was a family favorite, so. Oh, really? So it's just been watched a few times. Many, many times. Excellent. Yeah. You're going to watch that sequel with Dolph Lundgren? Um, No. Okay, save it for the family later on in yeah, life. Yeah, when we have a family gathering, we'll probably put that on, do a double back-to-back. So, a lot to talk about with this movie. A lot. Definitely very different from anything we've seen so far in the Nightmare series. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of background on how this was written. We mentioned before on our third podcast that Wes Craven was asked to write that film. He came up with this idea of the everyone playing themselves, the actors playing themselves, the crew playing themselves... Uh, the creators and producers and director. Um, it was too ahead of its time for New Line. Uh, but in 1994, 
Uh, by that point, Craven and well, Bob Shea had come back to Craven. So Craven originally sold the whole series over to get it made. He made no money off of the first film, and he didn't make much off of the subsequent films for a long time because he wasn't uh, really getting resi- residuals or points off of stuff. Uh, and finally, after them kind of ignoring each other for a long time, Bob Shea came back to him um, and sort of cut him in on some of the merchandising and retroactive cuts for the sequels. So he made some money. And at that point, the idea of Craven doing uh, a new Elm Street film came up. Um, so they started talking, talking about it, or chalking about it, depending on <laughs> how you think. Um, and Craven li- likes the idea of doing a seventh Elm Street film in time for the franchise's 10th anniversary. <coughs> which is crazy to think. Only 10 years have passed. And you'd had the entire... <laughs> you'd gone from one through to six to this. <coughs> doing right, buddy? You dying? Yeah. You can have that asthma attack from... What was it, Puffle? <laughs> um... Yeah, that's crazy to think. Ten years. I mean, where we're standing right now in 2016, it's been eight years since the remake of Friday the 13th. It's been six years since the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. How many films these guys churned out in those period of times back then? Amazing. Um, Surely we're due for a new one soon. Which, yeah. I mean, a nightmare. I'm not sure what's happening with it, but we'll get into that on our last podcast. Um, So, although he uh, had the basic concept for this with Elm Street 3... Um, he didn't originally go back to that. He actually tried to think, well, what else can I do with the series if we're going to make a new one? And Wes Craven apparently went back, watched all of the first six movies. That poor man. Came away realizing that there's no thread that he could follow on from. And he was very frustrated to realize there's no way you can make all that tie together and make something satisfying for the viewer to make it all make sense. Um, and at that point, he, he had met with Heather Langenkamp. And Heather Langenkamp has... An interesting story. She's the girl who played Nancy in the first film and in the third one. Um, she had suffered really with no re- real recognition from these films, sadly. Uh, Wes Craven always kind of waved her flag as she's the real heroine of these, but instead, obviously, Fred Krueger became the heroine, or the heroine, the hero of these films. Um, and so you get these... There's a never. There's a documentary on the series called Never Sleep Again, and they did a sequel to it, Never Sleep Again 2, which really follows her for the most part now. Um, and you see her at comic cons and stuff like that and conventions and Robert Englund's just got a queue around the block and she's just sitting there with no one wanting to talk to her or have her sign anything and it's really sad because she seems a lovely lady we should go to a comic con I know and see her we should just hang out hang out have a yeah, hang out. I want it. When I first saw that, I was like, I want to write something that we could work on together because she seems yeah. really lovely. Like she's really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, she had, um, she was in a TV show and she had a stalker who was making obscene phone calls and things like that. Um, I believe she had previously had a Freddy stalker as well, but that was you know long, long gone. She just had a new kid. She was worried about um, how these films were going to affect her child if he saw them and knew what she was in. And she had a husband who was a special effects artist uh, working in LA. Wait a minute. So Wes Craven <laughs> came out of a lunch meeting with her, realized he wanted to make another movie that she was a star of because um, he believed in her so much. And he thought her real life was far more interesting and frightening than anything that had happened in the last five nightmare <laughs> films. <laughs> so he decided to base the whole film around her stories of her life. Um, so he went away. And came up with what was at the time... Now, there had been... We were just discussing. Now, the word for it is meta. At the time, it was definitely postmodern. Um, there had been films with postmodern things here and there, for sure. But this was the first, to my knowledge anyway, and particularly when I was in film school and we talked about it, the first all-encompassing postmodern film where every aspect of it 
is breaking the fourth wall in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. So right from the off here, you're, you're playing with all the characters playing themselves in real life. Her setup in the film is exactly the same as the one I just described, basically. Um, and Wes Craven in the film is playing himself, writing the script of the life that she's actually leading <laughs> as it happens. Uh, I guess he's having it just before, isn't he? Because he's, he's having nightmares yeah. and then writing it and then it seems to happen mm-hmm. immediately afterwards. Um, was there anything else leading up to this? No, there's a little bit we'll get into on the next one about Freddy versus Jason that was going on at the same time as this. But Interesting. We'll talk about that uh, next time. So that was the interesting way that he sort of came up with the idea and wrote about it. Alex, mm-hmm. where we left last time, I'm trying to get comfortable with my weird little chair. <laughs> If you're not watching the uh, video version of this, go to YouTube, type in We Are Tesla, type in Geeks, and, and you can subscribe to us there. How you? Well, that was a real crick. I hope it picked it up. Um, how are you feeling coming into this, man? Like straight away, having such a complete... I mean, I know you knew what you're getting yourself into with this, mm-hmm. but... How's the, how's the complete, you know, change in direction for you with the series? Um, you know what? I was really, really looking forward to this film. Um, when I spoke to you and said, cool, I want to be part of this retrospective. I obviously wanted to see the first one um, to kind of re-trigger childhood memories of, of, of Nightmare on Elm Street and the Freddy Krueger character. But sort of looking through the, the films that followed the first one, um this one really stood out for me and um even though i hadn't seen it i did a bit of research just to kind of get a brief understanding of what the story was about and once i knew what it was about um yeah i was super intrigued so i was really excited coming okay. into this so you had your, your interest were peaked to have a weird yeah. postmodern version of Freddy. absolutely okay well we'll find out later on if, if it paid off for you or not mm-hmm. um so this came out a lot of people claim scream to be the first postmodern horror film which wes craven also wrote and directed sorry he didn't write kevin williamson wrote it directed um but he did that film two years later in 96 um so this predates that and it's certainly more postmodern than scream i think in, in so many ways it's funny like watching it i could definitely see elements that he then took into screen for yeah. sure particularly with julie like mm-hmm. with the younger girl in it there's a couple of bits where he uses her in a similar way and and the build-up at the beginning but let's go through the story then really quickly there's a lot here so mm-hmm. i'm gonna get in broad <laughs> strokes because i don't want to like get into the minutiae and waste too much time with that because we'll we'll delve into it properly yes um essentially you start with um a similar opening to uh an i'm on elm street there is a freddy glove being made albeit uh, a different type of glove it's mechanical um it then comes alive uh, that you realize sorry you realize they're on a film set uh Wes craven calls cut heather's there a special effects boyfriend's there they're making a new freddy film um you think you're in real life the glove comes alive starts killing people she wakes up in an earthquake um you're in los angeles for the first time shooting actually in Los Angeles where <laughs> yeah. the story's based in Los Angeles rather than pretending to be Ohio. They should have shot in Ohio. <laughs> they should have shot in Ohio for LA. That would have been brilliant. Um, and you, Heather Langkamp is our lead playing herself. She has a son called Dylan. She has a boyfriend called... I don't know if I got his name. Sorry, husband. Do you remember? Chase. Chase. Thank you. Chase is her husband. Um, and a nanny called Julie. Um, she's been having... She's been being stalked essentially she's been getting obscene phone calls she's also been getting letters through the post we find out later uh with burnt uh letters on them yeah. <laughs> don't know how to phrase that better <laughs> um her son is also having bad dreams and she keeps coming downstairs and finding he's watching a nightmare on elm street 
um, and quoting bits from the movie. Uh, he uses his cuddly dinosaur Rex to protect himself by pushing it to the bottom of the bed and claims that there's a mean old man with claws down there who's trying to get at him. Um, so Heather's husband goes off to do a job um, and then Dylan has an attack. So she rings him up on his way back. He uh, gets killed off by Freddy, but it makes it look like he fell asleep at the wheel and crashed his car. Um, Heather's then told about her, you know, about her husband's death. She goes to the morgue to check him out, sees the Freddy claw marks on his chest and <gasps> begins to quickly piece together that things feel off. Mm. Uh, earthquakes are a big theme in this movie. They kind of continue throughout the whole film. Mm -hmm. It's hard to always tell when they're real and when they're not. And the movie definitely plays a lot with which scenes are a dream and which ones aren't. Um, then... God, there's so much in this fucking film. It's hard to yep. know to get to. She meets up with Robert Englund um, briefly. Uh, they There's some great middle fingers to the previous entries in the series. Um, they have a funeral for her husband. Weirdly, her best friend seems to be John Saxon, who's the guy who played her father in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. So they hang out a yeah, lot. Yeah, he's sort of like a mentor, isn't he? Yeah. So they talk about the problem she's having with her son now that her husband's dead and she doesn't know how to handle him. Um, he seems to be spiraling and going off the deep end. Um, what is it he does actually? She has to take him to the hospital for. I've forgotten already. Who the the little... son? Uh, I don't remember. Do you remember Alison? <laughs> Do you remember? Alison's in the room as well. She just watched the film. None of us can remember. This is really bad. Well, what she initially takes him for? Yeah. Why does she originally? Hang on, I've got it in my because he has yeah. like he starts frothing at the mouth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She gets an obscene phone call, um, which calls back to the first film. We get Freddy's tongue come out of the phone. He says, I touched him. And then licks her face, just like an arm and arm through one. And then her son's sort of having a fit. So she takes yeah. him to hospital. This point, um, things change a little bit. Her son's then essentially trapped at the hospital because the nurses are refusing to let him go, keeping him in for tests. Heather's becoming more and more crazed. She's been asked by Robert Shea of New Line Cinema, again, playing himself, the longstanding producer of all these films, to come back and star in a new Nightmare film. Um, when she then asks him if he's been getting obscene phone calls or any weird things been going on, he looks kind of guilty about it, but brushes it off. She rings up uh, Robert Englund to talk about Wes Craven and Wes Craven's new script that he's working on for a new Nightmare film. Robert Englund has also been having weird dreams and is a painter, mm -hmm. uh, painting uh, demonic pictures of a darker, meaner, more evil Freddy. Uh, and then he disappears from the film, which we'll definitely be talking about. Um, and then she meets with Wes Craven to try and piece more of it together, who in a very expositional scene <laughs> explains what's going on. He explains that he believes there was once an ancient evil, which is very, very old. And the only way you could trap it was with storytelling. So every now and then a story would come along that was good enough uh, that could trap the evil inside the story. And you had to keep making films or writing books or whatever it is you're doing to tell your story to keep it trapped. But once people became too used to those stories or once they got watered down, is his wording, um, and lose, then they lose their power to keep it trapped and it begins to get out again. So they need to make a new nightmare film that's good enough to keep uh, the, the evil trapped. Nothing veiled in that at all. Nothing veiled at all. No middle fingers to everything else that's happened in this series. Um, he then claims, when she asks him, well, how can, you know, is there a way to defeat him? He claims, well, yeah, there, there is. Um, there's a gatekeeper, which in this one, he says, is Heather. Because 
basically this evil has gotten so used to being freddy that he kind of likes him mm -hmm. and he's gotten used to our time and space so he wants to stay here and the evil wants to come into the real world but heather is the gatekeeper because nancy was the first person to destroy freddy and heather gave nancy her strength yep so well, well said so dramatically it makes perfect sense is yeah. his is his wording the most convoluted load of bullshit <laughs> possible, but said with, with great com convincing conviction, I oh, feel, great from Wes Craven. God yeah. bless him. Um, how he gets through that scene without laughing at any point, I don't know. Um, but anyway, that's just I think he up. was just happy to be giving all the other films yep. and probably Robert Shea a big middle finger. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, so Wes Craven's writing this new script. But as he writes it, these things happen. So we end that actual scene with panning to his computer and we see he's already written that entire scene and the exact dialogue that they were saying. Um, then Heather, with this new lot knowledge, goes back to the hospital. Freddy's on an actual kind of rampage, getting stronger. Um, Dylan breaks out of the hospital, tries to get back home, which has been told is just over the freeway. There's a big money kind of scene with a big freeway not really a chase, but whatever you want to call it, with them trying to get across freeway. Pile up. Pile up. Um, and then Nancy gets back to, sorry, Heather, gets back to her home. Uh, John Saxon, the guy who played her father, is there waiting to help her with Dylan. Um, and then he starts calling her Nancy very subtly. Her hair has started to go grey like in the first film. He walks outside. He's suddenly dressed in the police uniform he was in in the first film. The street has turned into Elm Street. Heather's dressed in pyjamas like she was in the first film. Um, she turns to him he tells her that he loves her and calls her his daughter uh, and calls her Nancy and uh, hasn't, hasn't aged a day by the way he is an immortal <laughs> he, John Saxon is an immortal um, and then she has to give herself up and basically allow herself to play Nancy one last time as Wes Craven uh, said so she turns to him says I love you daddy and then becomes Nancy uh, Freddie is able then to come out of the bed and this is where it gets a bit hazy because he comes yeah. out of the bed to then take Dylan back to his world into the dream. So despite what's Craven saying, he's doing everything to come into the real world. He doesn't really seem to want to stay in the real world because he finally gets in the real world and then goes back to his ancient place. But anyway, yeah, Heather or Nancy then picks up a breadcrumb of uh, sorry, a breadcrumb trail of sleeping pills, which Dylan's left for her because we've already established early in the film. Dylan's obsessed with the Hansel and Gretel story. So we know there's going to be some synchronization with that story. The sleeping pills help her go to sleep and help her enter um, the, I guess, Demon Freddy, we'll call him. Demon Freddy's domain, mm -hmm. which is at the bottom of a huge, crazy waterfall and is all ancient Greek and um, very surreal and strange. Um, she fights with Freddy, basically. Yep. Uh, and they trap him in a Hansel and Gretel style sort of oven yeah. in ancient Greece, <laughs> to which he burns uh, up and turns into a demon in the last seconds. They explode out as the whole pantheon kind of blows up and uh, Partheon, sorry, not Pantheon. Mm. Um, and come out of the bed, find the script there lying in front of them, finished with a thank you note from Wes Craven for playing Nancy one last time. Uh, Dylan asks, can we read it? And they start reading the script from the beginning of the movie. Which is the beginning of... Of the film we of, just saw. Of the movie. And then some Seinfeld bass lines come in. <laughs> And then credits come up. Oh, well done, mate. Sorry, that's that sounds complicated. No, no, that was great. If you're listening to this and you haven't that seen this film, you probably just got a headache no, no. for what just happened. Did we miss anything, Alison? Well, yeah, but broad, broad strokes. We missed Julie, we missed Julie but Julie's but we'll not get into really, that. she's not, you know, 
I think we did. She is actually important for reasons I'll say later. She had a different role in this film that was then cut out. Uh, I don't know. She shot most of. Okay. But we'll get to that. So, Alex, we start this movie off. You know what the premise is going to be. Anyone who goes to this movie is going to know what the premise is. Mm -hmm. So we have to go with that interaction. If you know it's going to be different, you know it's breaking the fourth wall in some way. We have a throwback to the original. They're making the glove, but it's mechanical. Let's really get into those things. Because for me, this film's about the details. Yeah. How did you feel about it replicating that opening scene? How do you feel about this new weird mechanical glove? And then, you know, the, yeah, the hand essentially doing a kind of Adam's family and coming alive. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was interesting. I didn't... Um, um, oh, God, I just lost my train of thought. You didn't? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Um, didn't. Uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, so I, I wasn't sure, obviously how it would start or when it would break into now they're actors so my initial thought watching it was ah cool he's doing a very deliberate um throwback to the first film and in this we will see a demonic type real freddy Hmm. creating his weapon again um and then it would cut to thing so then when it dropped into building a mechanical hand i was like okay cool then this is I mean, first I was even thinking like, is, is they really doing that? Like, what's this is sort of weird. Um, yeah, and then when he yelled cut, I was like, cool, great, drop in. Um, yeah, and I liked it. I liked I liked that he honoured his own work. <laughs> he honoured his own work yeah. in a way. Um, um, and it was cool to break from that and to suddenly have that break straight away and for you as the audience to just be like, okay, it's all it's all made up. The bit then where it jumps into the mechanical hand. um, Going on a rampage. Going on a rampage. I thought was... Yeah, it was okay. I mean, I I liked it, but I didn't... Yeah, I sort of... I sit in the middle with that. I didn't dislike it and I didn't... I wasn't blown away by it. And I could kind of anticipate that, okay... Cool, we've got the setup of uh, this is like they're making the film and they're they're playing themselves, but I still could anticipate that okay, this is going to be mm-hmm. a dream sequence. Okay. Um, okay, so you're ready for that to pop out and you know. Yeah, the- yeah, just based on the rhythms of yeah, how these films go. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember how I first felt. I've seen this film by far the most out of all of them. Um, not saying that it's my favorite yet or anything but i've definitely seen it the most uh this one came out when i was 14 and i remember very implicitly going to the cinema to see this with my father and my uh and yeah and a friend and i remember sitting down the cinema really excited i may have seen the first one just before late night on tv and we told that story during the first episode of this podcast um, and it terrified me. But I was just getting into horror films at 14. I hated horror films up until that point. It sounds very young now at my age to say 14 I was into horror films. <laughs> but at that point, you felt really left behind. If you weren't having sex by the time you were, you know, 15, 16. If you hadn't seen horror films by the time you were 10, 11. You know, yeah, yeah. every year was a long gap at that age, you know. Um, so for me, I was very much left behind. Everyone else was watching Aliens and Terminator and Jason. And I was terrified by it all, so I didn't touch them. Mm-hmm. But I was just getting interested. And I went to see this and... For a 14-year-old me, it blew my mind because there was nothing like this. It was scary, but it was, whether it's actual intellectual or pseudo-intellectual, we can get into, but yeah. it's definitely trying to be smarter than most of these films. Yeah. Um, and loving it. And right away from the beginning, I'm just trying to remember how I felt about it because watching it now, 
one of my big problems with this film is really just the era it's getting into. So we're two years before Scream when that would come around and change everything. Mm-hmm. And it really did. It changed everything with horror. And we've never kind of looked back since Scream. But as we said in the last episode, we're in a dying era of horror. Um, and we're getting out of the griminess of the 80s, moving into the 90s, which was a polite decade of horror. It really was. There wasn't much violence in the film. So certainly no torture porn or anything like that. And it wasn't the griminess of the 80s. So my problem really with this first scene is kind of how polite it is. Like the mechanical yeah. hand, like you see these opening shots recreating the first film. And I love it because, and particularly now coming off of our watching all of them, I love it because it's going back. It yeah. feels way more interesting. It's it's obviously a callback to the original, but the original's opening shots were so grimy and yeah. nasty and just un- unsettling. Whereas this one, I don't feel unsettled at mm-hmm. all. Um, and the mechanical hand. I don't like the mechanical hand, I'll be honest. Um, yeah. I think it's too gimmicky and too 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like the beginning. I love I love the breaking the fourth wall immediately. And then, yeah, shaking it, shaking her out of the dream with an earthquake and tying these bad dreams into the earthquakes, I think was a great idea that I didn't really appreciate. Now living here in LA, I appreciate more yeah. that constant threat of earthquakes and that kind of weird fear that no one talks about in LA mm-hmm. <laughs> which is that yeah the earthquakes are, can be a big problem here um, so yeah I, I like the opening too but I do have problems with it in a way in a weird way comparing it to the first one makes it more problematic yeah, yeah. if you know what I mean yeah um, okay so then she she uh, wakes up um, we have a scene there so Dylan's watching A Nightmare on Elm Street on TV um which is really nice. But again, it's another weird thing of you you seeing glimpses of the original film on TV and I'm like, oh, I love that film so much. This yeah. film's really got to be good yeah. since you keep showing us the old one. Um, and then we have, like, I think we all commented on it, but just a scene of just endless things happening, which is very much like the beginning of Scream. Um, so, and I wrote down a list of them, how he's just building scare upon scare upon scare upon scare, yep. or tension upon tension, I should guess, I should say. You have the earthquake and then you have... Uh, the sound of the TV, and then you have Dylan screaming, then the phone immediately rings, then it's Freddy, then she puts it down and it rings again. You obviously think it's going to be someone else and it's a mistake. No, it's still Freddy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then uh, the kid says someone's coming. Then there's another earthquake immediately. Then the doorbell goes. <laughs> then after she goes the doorbell, then the phone rings again. <laughs> then she talks to her friend and then the phone rings yet again. And that's all just in one scene. Yeah. And there's no breath really between any of this stuff. It all just builds on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Is this style too much for you or are you enjoying the kind of tension building like that? I, I, I really enjoyed it, especially coming off the back of 6, 5, and 4. Maybe even 3 and 2. <laughs> <laughs> it, it felt someone... It, it, for me, I enjoyed it because it felt... Compared to those ones, like it was done by a person who was in control and and knew how to use the tools at their disposal. Mm. Um, maybe it did build too much because I did think I made a comment at the time where I was like, what? It's just never ending. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I appreciated it. I appreciated its technique because I felt like so many of those sequels lacked yeah. tension building technique. Yeah. So it was wonderful. So uh, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, it's weird because this is actually the longest of the films by quite some margin. 
but it's actually a breathless film i really noticed this time it doesn't yeah. actually stop there's always two things happening mm-hmm. in every scene whether you're bored with them or not is different but yeah, yeah, but yeah. there's always a lot happening um yeah did you find that too much or did you no i mean i this is the thing when i look at it from a writing perspective yes but yeah. I have the same problem with like The Conjuring. I really love The Conjuring. I don't mm. normally like those films. It's kind of like a theme park. They're just throwing everything at you. There's no patience yeah, with yeah. it. And this film, that's what I mean. There's kind of no patience to it. Um, and I don't really like that normally, but it works here. And I think it is because Wes Craven's made a lot of bad films, mm-hmm. but he's made some truly expertly made films. And I think he, he has a real deft hand at that kind of suspense building. Yeah. Uh, particularly when he's not dealing, I think, with the actual evil, when the evil's just around the corner yeah i think he's very good at that and i think that's why scream works so well is he, he can build yeah that tension just from phone calls and doorbell rings and timing that stuff and um just piling it on top of each other yeah and i mean it's interesting you talking about it, it sort of not being a patient film but then at the same time as far as like constantly having things happen and building that tension but i was i remember thinking through the film out of all of them, this is the, probably the longest uh, way until you see Freddy. Oh, yeah. It's a long time until you see Freddy. Yeah. So the first time you technically see him being Freddy, not a fake out or a movie prop or anything like that, mm-hmm. is his hand coming for to see to kill her husband. Mm-hmm. And you don't see him still. You just yeah. see his hand. They're like The first time you actually see him is when he pops out of the closet um, to get her. Well, no, sorry. No, you see the, him briefly when he's funeral. grabbing in the funeral. Yeah, yeah. her son and dragging him down. Um, but then the first time you get a proper confrontation is, yeah, like it was a long way, long mm-hmm. time. Um, so how do you feel? So we talked about it when Heather came back for part three. I said, oh, well, I really like her in the first one because I liked playing a girl. Mm-hmm. I didn't like her in part three because I don't actually think she's a good actress. And yep. I didn't like her playing a woman as, mm-hmm. as they put her in three. How do you feel about her in this one? Um, I had similar feelings to when I watched three initially, particularly for the first half of this film. I feel that she really grew into it mm-hmm. by the end where I really did enjoy uh, watching her and, and started thinking, uh, which something we'll discuss later on, uh, about favorite final girl. Final girls. Um, but I felt initially at the, at the start, I had those same feelings as in three where I was like, she still looks really young in this. Um, so there were parts when I was like, mm, do I quite believe... Um, you know, that she's got this family and, and that's her son. And and I think also partly what made me struggle with that believability was her acting at the start was still a bit, I don't know, a bit clunky and a bit forced. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt she really, really grew into it that, that I kind of let go of all those sort of reservations by the end. Okay. So more as a fear cell than you think she's better than doing the kind of... Yeah, I think so. I mean... I think I think she's definitely had grown as an actress and was better, but yeah, it still felt a bit silted at the, at the start. And yeah, I guess as the fear started playing in, the tension and the stakes started rising. Um, for me, she became more believable. Okay. Um, yeah, she's actually, I just looked, she's only 30 years old when she made this film. Wow. Which, yeah, was surprising. I think I feel like they're pitching her as late 30s or something mm. in this movie. But um. I really like her in this one. I was thinking it as I watched it because I've always thought I'm a huge Heather Langenkamp fan. And as we've gone through this, I realized, yeah, I really don't like her in three. I don't think mm-hmm. she acts well in that. Um, 
I really like her in this. I, I really believe in her as, as herself, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously playing off of things that she's gone through in real life mm-hmm. is quite believable. I think she's a really good look for the whatever age they are pitching her as. It looks great because, yeah, she still has some youth, but she does have enough lines and sort of yep. you know weariness in her face to look like she's been through some stuff. Um, yeah, I think she's got a good gravity to her. I know some people really don't like her in this movie. A lot. Of, some people just really don't like her in any of the, the Nightmare films, even the first one. Um, Would you go as far as saying that this is her strongest? I mean, I think she does way more in this one mm-hmm. than she does in the first one. Yeah. I think her playing a little mouse girl that she does in the first one, which I think if you don't like her in the first one, it's really... Not that she's an incredible actress in the first one, but I think if you don't like her in that, it's mostly because you don't like the character. It's yeah. a very mousy character, mm-hmm. uh, but I think she does it well. This one, I think she definitely shows off more. I think she acts better in this one, for yeah. sure. Yeah, um, but so. whether the character is, you know, uh, is as good, I don't know. Um, so we get a bunch of misdirection as well in this. We're throwing the nanny. Because um, for, for, I think at the beginning, well, I know at the beginning, you're meant to be wondering who's doing these phone calls. Is it actually Freddy? Is yeah. it someone in real life? Were you getting that? Absolutely. I mean, my initial thinking was with that... Um, yeah, and I was trying to think of slasher films from like Scream onwards and their kind of patterns. And so my, it was funny, it was almost like instinctual where when the husband went to work and then the phone rings, I was like, it's got to be him. And then I'm like, but no, that's probably a setup. And then I was like, is the limo driver? Yeah, so my mind was definitely that's good. throwing around like that okay. at the start. Yeah, that's so were you at any point with Freddy? Are you thinking... Freddy's going to be a real person or were you always expecting him to be a demon Freddy? Well, for those first moments, like when, yeah, when I thought husband, limo driver, um, I was thinking that, that it would be a genuine stalker. Interesting. Yeah. Alison, were you getting that at all? Yeah. That's what Alison was getting. This was Alison's first nightmare film. So we're going to ask you right at the end, the recommendation question. Just so you know. <laughs> I think I know where you might be going. Um, she was scared, by the way. She was terrified. She yeah. was just shaking throughout yeah. the whole film. Eyes closed. Uh, particularly in time a nurse was on screen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. But. Um, yeah, you mentioned the limo driver. He comes to pick her up, take her to um, a TV uh, interview uh, where she is forced to talk about uh, Freddy, which we'll talk about quickly in a second. <laughs> yeah, we but the limo driver, who's hilarious, definitely a misdirection mm-hmm. of he looks a bit like Freddy in his facial structure. Mm-hmm. He asks her, hey, you're the girl from those films, aren't you? With the guy, with the claws. I love how no one ever knows his, like, his name <laughs> yeah. and those things. Um, people who have clearly seen all the films but can't remember Freddy's name. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, he does the first pointed line of the film, which is, the first one was the best. Yeah. <laughs> which was the first time Wes Craven gets in something he, he's trying to say. But then she goes to the uh, TV set and we pan across the crowd and there are all these parents with their kids and the kids... That bit was excellent. ...are all dressed as Freddy. All of the kids. Like, so none good. of the parents, just the kids. Um, <laughs> and this came apparently from a real uh, story where you know, um, Wes Craven was at one of these events and looked out at the crowd and saw all the kids dressed as Freddy and it kind of weirded him out what this had become and yeah. how Freddy had become that kind of icon to them. Because um, it was great also in that bit, the talk show host is asking Heather if she would let her children watch the film. Yeah. And then they're all kids. Yeah, all the kids are just saying that. Um, And there's definitely 100% a huge subtext to this whole film 
which is to do with yeah the effect not just the effect these movies might have on your children but then also with a nanny state kind of literally with the nurses um having like they literally take away her control of how she can what she can do with her child mm -hmm. and is and they keep accusing her of ev all these problems come from the fact you've shown your child these films and i know wes craven had a huge problem uh with censorship of films um which he had struggled with for most of his career which he brings up later on as well during that big expositional speech that yep. he does. yeah um so there's <laughs> definitely a big commentary here sort of discussing you know where the priorities come with your children and how much control you have over you know what you're giving them and if the nanny state's trying to take away that control of of you know what you trust your children can watch and handle just to be clear i don't think any child should be watching a nightmare on elm street particularly at the age that this kid is yeah he's like what four or five that kid the first one anyway part six will probably be fine yeah. <laughs> um so then new line cinema calls heather uh robert shea wonderful i just love he's not a great actor bless him but i love his office just full of freddy merchandise and there's the big picture on the wall of like the andy warhol freddy mm -hmm. did you notice yeah that? yeah Different colors. that was awesome so funny i like to feel that's actually how his office is oh and just to go back quickly to the talk show bit when robert england came out as freddy yes and waved to the crowd i thought that was awesome and that was the only time you see freddy in this film in classic makeup yeah i thought that was so great and i thought it was great that that he was playing up Freddy as Freddy was in the last previous film in, in yeah. Nightmare uh, 6. Yeah. The talk show host Freddy, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was just really funny and great. And, uh, and he's throwing out all his lines as well. Yeah. Like, you're all my children now and all this <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Definitely yeah. another pointed moment. Um, so, yeah, she goes to Robert Shea at his great office. Um, tells her that Wes has started having nightmares again. And they started working on a new prototype of the glove that they got her husband to work on a new prototype of the glove. So again, with the glove, it's an interesting decision. Like, why would you go this way with the glove? Like, why so would you change? So just to be clear, the glove here at this point is not a glove, but almost like an eco-skeleton yeah. sort of thing that attach, still attaches to the hand, but... Yeah, well, I think it replaces the hand completely. Because at the beginning, he's going to chop off his hand to replace yeah. it with this purely sort of robotic Terminator style hand really but then when we see it on demon freddy later it's sort of the same but again evolved from that for sure but there are wires coming yeah out of it, sort of like tubing looks like it's yeah it's weird it's very weird do you like the new glove do you think it's necessary um i can accept it in this circumstance because we're seeing the demonic freddy um so i i can accept that there's slight alterations to the demon version of him. I mean, his face looked completely different as well. Yeah. Um, and his size, he looked much sort of more like bigger and robust. And, yeah. They definitely um, make him stand more upright. He's yeah. taller. And um, So I can accept the glove, but I mean, I just still love the classic one. It's like in the second one when they had it coming out of his, directly out of his hands. Like I hated that. Okay. Um, and I hated... Because, yeah, it just didn't feel right. Was this one, it looks different. I, I, it's not what I would choose, but I can accept it. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, um, with his face, you felt the same way, basically, of just, look, it's different, but I'll go along with it. Yeah, I mean, the whole feel and look of him, and then, obviously, we'll probably talk about this later, the imagery of what he looked like uh, was very Nosferatu-esque. Yeah. Even his face. Um 
you know, it's sort of, yeah. And it was fine. I mean, it, it, it made sense in under these circumstances. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm kind of the same. Again, it goes with that. It's polite. You know, it's more stylish for sure. Yeah. I like the kind of stylish look of it, but it's more polite. It's a 90s feel to it. The gloves more polite as well. None of it has that grimy snuff film feel yeah. that an 80s version had. Um, so it's kind of weird because at the same time, they're trying to go darker and more evil with him, but I actually think he doesn't look as evil as he did in the first one. Um, yeah. So it's strange, but I get they're trying to do a demon thing. His clothes are a big problem for me. When you finally see him at the end and he's in the iconic coat with the hat, and none of them are worn. None of them are dirty. There's yeah. nothing pristine, brand new. And that, like, that's a good point. And it just felt really 90s to me, that stuff of just having those kind of... Because it was at first green. in the hospital when he, he sort of comes up from, uh, from behind Julie. Yeah, I remember like looking and his hat was in like perfect clean perfect condition. condition yeah. I don't know if that was a conscious decision. I mean, obviously someone picked it, but I don't know if it was conscious in the narrative way. Yeah. Um, in terms of, well, you know, he's a demon and it, everything would, I don't know, like everything would be new for whatever reason um, because it's immortal, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, or if it was just a stylistic decision. But I would have, I would have much preferred if they made him look dirtier for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, so then her husband dies uh, with a sort of a throwback to part five. Uh, when the jock is driving yes. um, sort of a throwback to that but doing it properly yeah um, and then we have the funeral scene now the funeral scene we have a bunch of the old actors there hanging out in the background so cool which is nice yeah. you get you get the leather dude from the first film who still looks the same as well but I guess it's only 10 years later so I guess it's not crazy different. leather dude the the kind of the um, the punk from the first film who they think ah uh, yep. Tina. yep he's there um, you got uh, what's her name? Tuesday night, the singer of that song. That Kristen, like, yeah, she, Kristen two, yeah, Kristen two. Uh, a whole bunch <laughs> of them are there. Night, yeah. And apparently afterwards, Wes Craven was too scared to go and ask Johnny Depp to be in that scene. And afterwards, Johnny Depp saw him and said, "I would have loved to have been in that scene." So he was really kicking himself. That would have been great. Although we do get a uh, a little photograph in Wes Craven's office. We do of Johnny Depp. Um, Heather Langkamp and yeah, Robert yeah, Edmund yeah, from the first film on set, which that's is really true. awesome. But yeah, that would have been just an extra nice little thing to have Johnny there for a second to give like Heather a hug and go, yeah, you know, like give me a call if you need anything. Um, okay, where do we go from there? Um, husband then we get died. To, yeah, the husband died at the funeral. funeral. Then we get to some of the the god things start to come back in. So they really have been in and out of religion with this series mm-hmm. um and they definitely strayed heavily into it in number four what was it i'm trying to remember there was one when it got heavily religious uh number three? three number three number three because it was about the holy water hallowed ground yes 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 yeah, the nun and they don't get heavily into it here but they definitely do touch into it you have um a sequence where yeah uh what kind of I, I like this scene like when she's talking to her son and the son's asking where dad is and she's saying like he's in heaven and then the son asks why does God make you know bad things happen and she says I don't honestly know um, and then he says do you have to die to see God and she says no I think you just have to pray and reach out mm-hmm. um, and so then in the next scene they're at his playground and she's talking to John Saxon and her kid starts climbing up this huge framework and gets up onto the top of it it's really high up and starts reaching out and it's kind of and it's great because it works both as a freddy reach out with the claws with his hands but then when he falls and she catches him and she says what are you doing he says like god wouldn't have me 
Yeah. Do you like this? Yeah, I, I liked it. I liked the sort of sincerity of all that. Um, like, for me, it didn't feel too heavy as far as coming from a religious aspect. You know, it felt it felt in a kind of sincere, honest way of a mother and child dealing with grief. Okay. You know, I mean, as sincere and grounded as it can be, you know, you know. Sort of slash you know what <laughs> i am too good for wes craven's films <laughs> no but 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 yeah i enjoyed it i mean i appreciated that yeah i, I think it's i think it's a well executed scene um i think that's a difficult scene to shoot and i thought mm. you did it did it as well as you could to be honest um i forgot also in that conversation with with his mom he asked her can you come in can you come in with me to my dreams brilliant which is definitely a nod to the other ones where you have the dream warriors and she just kind of laughs and says, I think that only happens in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I loved all that little More snide remarks. Yeah. Um, so then we go on to, she rings Robert Englund, who is now a painter. Um, he says he can't see her that day because it's not convenient. The next time she rings him up when she's in trouble, it goes straight to voicemail and it says the Englands are now in town right now. And then we might be gone. There's a pause for some for some time, <laughs> and they just they're just gone. And a lot of people, I never thought about it the first however many times I watched this movie. I never really cared. I was just like, well, it's Robert Englund. He's gone off somewhere. Who cares? A lot of people have a problem with him disappearing in this movie. Where is Robert Englund? Because uh, they notice it. I didn't really. I don't. Yeah, I'm I not worried about seeing Robert Englund as Robert yeah. Englund. But there's a reason for this. We had to play Freddy. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta. <laughs> Um, what well, did you first of all? Did you have a problem with it? And then I'll explain to you what actually happened. Uh, you know what? I don't because I, I missed it. I actually missed that answering machine bit. It's just when I think it's when she's running out of the hospital and she rings up people's that went. I'm looking at Allison because Allison has an incredible brain and retains a lot of mm-hmm. information. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. I didn't get that. So no, I didn't. I didn't miss him. No, and I well, I mean, I my mind didn't start thinking where is he. You didn't really have time to start thinking. Oh, hang on, what happened to Robert? Yeah, exactly. Um, so here we go. So a lot of people tend to think um, that maybe he became possessed, but maybe he was killed by Freddy. Who knows? You know what happened to him? But originally, England's absence was meant to be explained via a dream. Um, this is what Robert England said. Quote. <clears throat> Robert England has a nightmare in his house in the Hollywood Hills with my paint-stained apron over a chair. I fall asleep and wake up in a giant web and a giant red and green Freddy spider comes down and cocoons me in an homage to the fly. (coughs) That was going to be why I disappear. I wake up from this nightmare in a sweat next to my beautiful wife and the next thing you know in the film, Wes tells Heather that Robert's gone and they don't know where he is. End of quote. But this uh, scene was never filmed. They did, however, film a cut scene. Um, in, sorry, a scene that was cut in which Robert's wife informs Heather over the phone that they're heading out of town because Robert was freaked out. Yeah. Um, yeah, Freddy Spiders. <laughs> We've had Freddy Spiders in the last one. No, number five again, I think that was. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very happy that didn't happen. Yeah, so am I. Uh, yeah, I like the fact that it's she called and he's like, he's out of town. Yeah, I would have preferred that. Just one, like, I mean, the, the answer machine was okay. But actually, no, I think the answer machine is the best way to go. Just both of them dropped off the edge of the map. Mm-hmm. I think that's fine. Leave it up to our imagination. Yeah. And I mean, at that point, do you still kind of... Can... Does it still give you an inkling that he is possibly doing it? Yeah, I think that's also good as well. If he disappears, you're thinking about all these different people. I think we clearly established there is a demon Freddy, though, fairly. Yeah, yeah. But you just don't know if it could all play out just to be in her 
head mm-hmm. and just actually be nightmares. Um, which again, if we can play into the play, uh, role of Julie as the nanny. Yes. So she's a red herring we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently she was instructed by Wes to act all the scenes suspiciously. <laughs> right. Um, did you believe throughout the whole film that she might be up to something or did you? Not really. I mean, the only point where I thought, okay, that's something's a bit odd here was when um, Heather ran to the hospital um, after I think she had the nightmare where she got sliced and Julie was already there. And she was like, oh yeah, I, what did she say? Did she say she had a dream? Julie said that, right? Yeah. Um, that was the only point where I was like, okay, that's a bit fishy. Okay. Yeah. So you're just every now and then a little bit, maybe, but... Yeah, I mean, even in the start, I wasn't thinking anything. It was okay. only really that point. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so Tracy Middendorf, um, this was her film, feature film debut. Um, so in the original script, she was actually Freddy's pawn, possessed by him to do his bidding. So all of the stalking and harassing Heather suffers throughout the film was supposed to be Freddy's work through Julie. They cut it for fear that it somehow diminished Freddy, although they did choose to retain the element where we're not supposed to completely trust her. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, how did you feel about her? Did you I, get that So vibe? here's the problem with this movie. I mean, if we start talking more broadly about it. The problem with the movie is a lot of it, it's kind of, it feels like the kind of thing... I try and write and then hope it's not going to be shit and we'll see when I make my first film. But where there's all these ideas and none of them really make sense. Like all that stuff doesn't really add up. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like it doesn't add up. Well, who is her stalker? How, why does he have a voice of Freddy? Why does then the phone become a tongue that can lick her if she has a stalker that's separate from Freddy? Is, yeah, Freddy, yeah. is demon Freddy somehow from the dream world sending her things? Like why does Freddy want to come into the real world but then when he is in the real world he just goes back into his world? Like, there's a lot of stuff in this that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And the one scene of exposition is so full of shit, as I already said. But they, for me, and I know some people disagree. So as I told you before, some people hate this movie. Mm-hmm. For me, they get away with it. For me, I'm like, I'll, I will go with it. And stuff I don't know or understand, I'm fine with not understanding, you know? Yeah. Where is Robert Englund? I don't care. There's a million things that could happen to him. Does yeah. he also have a real life stalker as well? Or is that actually tied into Demon Freddy? I don't care. I'm happy for either of those options. You know, I'm happy. With, there's a lot of question marks. I don't think they're all purposeful. I think Wes Craven didn't necessarily think everything through, mm-hmm. but I'm kind of happy with that. You yeah. Know? I'm just, I'm just going to go with it. Even the Hansel and Gretel thing, they make a point. Like the breadcrumbs don't save Hansel and Gretel. The birds eat them. That's what, how that legend goes. And the kid even makes a point of saying, you know, at some point, oh, unless the birds eat them first. Yeah, yeah. And then at the end, they use the breadcrumbs to find a way back as if that's how Hansel and Gretel ends. And it's like, well, no, if you're actually echoing Hansel and Gretel, you should then stop that and, you know, throw in the sort of, even Han- basically even Hansel and Gretel had more sophisticated overall storytelling than yeah, this yeah. ends up having. But I'm just along for the ride and I'm quite happy with it all, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so stuff like that, it's like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm with you, um, just because it's it's innovative, particularly for the time. Um, okay, okay, okay. I'm looking for my notes. Silence. Hello. Silence. We're just looking for notes at the moment. I get lost. I have so many notes on these movies. We'll be back. As we watch them, I'm just tapping away, and it's kind of frustrating because I keep thinking I keep coming up with different ways to organize it, so mm-hmm. I can come back and read them in easy ways. Um, do, 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 do. 
I really like the scene of uh, Freddy's glove coming out of her bed. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that looked cool. My f- <laughs> The first sort of thought I had was shark fin glove. Yeah. Just because of the way it was just like floating through. Obviously, it wasn't uh, sideways and it was like yeah, proper yeah, yeah. claw. But my mind did go there. I like it because the metal's so clean, it looks CGI. Yeah. But it's not. But it just looks that clean. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weirdly seems to exist between both. Um, now, when Heather takes her son to the hospital, all the nurses are immediately bitchy. Like yep. all of them are mis-untrusting of her and bitchy straight away. Yep. I have a lot of problems with all of the stuff that happens at the hospital because none of it is possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not allowed to do this stuff. They're not allowed to keep your kid without really good like proof that you are you know, mistreating them. Yeah. Um, they're not allowed to trick you and inject your kids. There's a scene where a nurse, two nurses come in to inject uh, her, her son with, um, I want to say sleep serum for a second. Sedative. <laughs> Sedative. <laughs> and one of the nurse sidetracks Julie, so then the other one can do it. And then she looks all smug at her. Mm-hmm. And then Julie clocks her in the face, which is fucking awesome. Brilliant. But they're all just horrible. And they're all just looking at these innocent people who mm-hmm. go through hell with these sneering, mistrusting faces. And I hate them all. Yeah. I really hate them. And it's, and it's all bullshit because none of it would happen, but it's kind of cool for the movie because it gives you a different group of people to get angry about. So it actually gets me, it affects me more than Freddie does. And I mean, that could have been, that could possibly be one of the only moments where I was hoping for a Freddie rampage. <laughs> to go for the hospital and just kill everyone <laughs> and just just you know take a few of those nurses out yep uh yeah he doesn't touch anybody no i don't think actual kills in this film you just have i guess the two special effects guys actually i guess we should mention that kill in the uh in the hospital julie's kill yeah yeah so then we do get to one of the highlights of the film but again a call back to the first film mm-hmm. which is julie's kill um as dylan watches her get grabbed by an invisible Freddy, dragged up the walls onto the ceiling in the, yeah, an homage to, um, to, sorry, Tina in the first film. Yeah. Um, for me, it's bittersweet. How does this seem for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I liked it purely because it was, uh, you know, it's a throwback to the first one. And that's such a great scene in Nightmare on Elm Street. So I, I appreciated it for that value. I thought it was an interesting choice to kind of show Freddy in that moment. Whereas like in Nightmare on Elm Street, he's invisible for that whole time. Yeah. And you, you never see him like actually dragging her across the roof, or across the ceiling, which I found more affecting that you don't see him and like she's floating off and being dragged so i thought that was an interesting choice that we saw it happen um he has a couple of his only one liners in this film at this point as well which certainly aren't as cheesy as the old ones what does he say do you remember no i was i started to write them down and then i thought i don't need to write down those one liners because it's going to be too many yeah yeah (laughs) but there weren't there are only about four in the film i think yeah no it was uh it was cool. I liked it. I liked it. Um, yeah, I thought it was really cool. That's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah, okay. laughs> just about that. I can't. I just can't seem to articulate it more. I'm bittersweet with it because, again, it's one of those things of I'm happy this sort of thing's back. I prefer it to the way they're doing kills in all the subsequent movies, pretty much. Mm-hmm. 
but we've seen this scene better 10 years ago. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, that's what kind of frustrates me is... I really, really, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. You're reminding me of the stuff I love about this series. But most of the best bits you're replicating from something you already did. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. We have the gooey stairs later on when she's yeah. running after Freddy. Um, we have, obviously, the long arm as well. Tongue stuff is the same. Um, we have, a lot, like, little nods as well. Like, when she's running through the hospital, someone says, you're in a restricted area, you need a pass. And she says, screw your pass, which is a direct line from the first film as well when she's yeah. running through the high school. It was interesting. There were a lot of moments where I was, where there were these kind of replays of, of moments or kind of techniques, I suppose, by Freddie, where I thought, where for me it felt almost, it was like Res, Wes Craven reclaiming that yeah. original idea and like perhaps where he would have taken it next in a, in a, in a sense of like, like setting the firm foundations of what Freddie would maybe repeatedly do or like what's his calling card or, or or how he functions and sort of breathes in his world. And that's how I was kind of seeing all these moments. Like, yes, there was some where it's like the line where it's just like a cool little quip and it's like, oh, cool. It's a similar line or there's like little digs to the other films, but moments like that, like the killing of uh, Julie or the, the sloppy stairs. Yeah. For me, it felt like, okay, he's, he's taking it back. Do you know what I mean? What is the thing that's genuinely so smart about it? The script he came up with gives him an out for all that stuff because every, it all hinges on Nancy, sorry, Heather becoming Nancy and agreeing to become Nancy again. Um, and so the whole world gradually echoing more and more the first film. Mm-hmm. So it's brilliant because even when I'm kind of pissed with it, I'm also, it's awesome because it's building that world back in. You get your replicating bits from the first film as you become the first film and yeah. as you allow, you know, these characters to become the characters they were actually playing in that first movie. So it's a really... I genuinely think it's incredibly smart and shrewd way yeah, yeah. to recycle things but so that they mean more, um, which is great. Um, as a weird aside, we did notice there's a, a nurse in the hospital only for one scene, I think who is played by the same lady who played the teacher in Nightmare on Elm Street 1. Yeah, and who's in a lot of uh, Farrelly Brothers films. Which is my problem with this whole film now, that I've noticed that, because everyone else who's in both films plays themselves. Yeah. So, in my head, she has to be playing herself, so she has to be playing an actress who we know went on to do quite a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, she's technically the most successful actor probably other than Robert Englund mm. from these from that film oh sorry Joanie Depp I mean uh, from that film um, and yet here she's working in a hospital so I yeah, think yeah that was really strange she's probably secretly kind of pissed off Heather doesn't notice her and say hey how's it doing why are you working in a hospital <laughs> now actress lady from the first film <laughs> yeah that was really odd that she got that part I don't I just it's weird because surely they know it's her yeah. She didn't creep through, did she? For her she just got through casting. And yeah. like, so hey, no one seems to have noticed. We all worked together 10 she's years ago. She's just like ago. walking on a stage like, hey, hey guys. Hi. <laughs> they're like, Good oh, to be yeah, back hey. again. And they're like, it's your first day, isn't it? <laughs> no, <laughs> it was because they're all be playing along and Hollywood way off. Yeah, it's so good to see you again. It's like, who is she? <laughs> Dreadful. Um, then we get the, the, the big car chase crash pile up scene thing. Um, I have some big problems with this. I hate the, the clouds. It, so did I. I remember even at the time in 94, this didn't look good. Mm-hmm. Did not look good in, in my mind anyway. Um, it was cheesy. Um, certainly not as cheesy as we've seen Freddy become. Yeah. 
but the, he starts playing with Dylan. Now I think it's actually well directed with the cars. Like I think that's actually well done. There's some you know some fairly good stunt work that they do considering um, the budget of this film. But Freddy himself, I'm not really on board with. And then you get a couple of very quick shots of hundreds of Freddies running towards a fence that clearly are just people with masks on mm -hmm. and don't look great. But they edit it so quickly, you're not meant to notice. Um, yeah, it shook yeah. me out of it a little bit. Yeah, I, di I didn't enjoy that those Freddy bits either, actually. For me, it was like, okay, well, now you're doing sort of... Yes, you're keeping him sinister and evil, but it felt just a bit sort of cheesy. And it felt like a bit like some of the stuff from the crappier sequels. Yeah. I can appreciate you need that scene in there. It's a proper action scene. Mm -hmm. 94, we needed proper action scenes um, in our films. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it worked well for trailers, I'm, sh I'm sure. But Freddy's presence in it doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. Just seeing the glove maybe would have been fine. I don't mind the scene as a whole, but just, yeah, not Freddy in the clouds. Yeah. I think that didn't do it for me. Um, Alison loved it though. She, she was applauding during that yeah. scene. If you're not going to be on a podcast, I'm just going to speak for you, Alison. She loved it. Yeah, she was applauding. You're just screaming from the other side yeah. of the room. That's all anyone ever hears of you. Um, and then she goes to a house. Now, here's why... Now, I've told you, I've watched this movie a lot of times. Um, here's why I love this movie. Yes. I love this movie for this scene, even though, as we've already <clears throat> explained, it makes no sense for what mm -hmm. happens next. I love her going to a house. I love when her father starts calling her, well, her friend, John Sachs, starts calling her Nancy. Yeah. I love how subtle they are with that to begin yep. with. I love that then she goes outside and sees like suddenly she is on Elm Street and the police car's out there and the vibe suddenly changes. And I love the music build and I love Freddie gradually coming out of this latex bed, which is kind of a flip of the latex wall he did mm -hmm. in the first film. And then slits open just the eyes so he can look out, you know, for, peer out from it. And then waiting for the second she accepts her role as Nancy. She says that line. The music kicks in proper. He rips through it. It's really cool. You get the Nosferatu shot you already yeah, talked about. I love it. I love this sequence. Yeah. And for me, the whole movie revolves around this sequence of this is what they're building to the whole time. It may not pay off. <laughs> we'll talk about it in a second. That's uh, our last point. bit to do with this film. But yeah, I just, I just... This is why, whenever I think about this film, this is a bit I think about. Yeah. I, I remember being, when I was a young teenager, after seeing this film, constantly thinking about how cool that bit is of him pulling out of the bed and ripping through mm -hmm. it. And I just, I loved the visuals of that so much as a kid. And it was one of the main reasons I got into slasher films, honestly, that shot. Yeah, wow. That shot. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, for me, that, that whole scene really caught me by surprise, which I really, really liked. Because when it, when it started and she got back and John Saxon was there, I think I was going to make a joke to you um, where I was like, oh, imagine it would be so funny if he turned up in his police costume <laughs> from Nightmare on Elm Street. And I was, you know, just being a smart ass. And then so subtly, like, like a, yeah, it was so subtle where I didn't even pick up the first uh, moment where he called her Nancy. I sort of missed it. And, uh, and then... And then when they go outside and he says it again, and then suddenly even the subtlety in his acting, going from himself to playing the yeah. dad, um, was suddenly just like super clear and in front of me. And I was like, whoa, that was cool. And then just as they, she gets to the car and they pan out and then the house is the, the house on Elm Street. Yeah, um, Absolutely loved it. And yeah, the bit um, 
the Nosferatu shot was so cool. You're coming out of the bed and then just the the, the click of the, the claws and seeing the shadow in him kind of... I mean, it looks exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was cool. It was really awesome seeing him sort of Freddy's shadow float through the room. Um, I, I think John Saxon's awesome in this film. I really yeah, noticed yeah. him this time watching it for the first time. of like, he's so much better than everyone else on screen. Yeah, he's absolutely. really good, his like, delivery. Just just that scene and his his transformation, his shift and the subtlety of him playing himself and then going to play the dad. But then as the moment he is the dad, it is noticeably different. Yeah. And it's just, but it like happens before your eyes and yeah. then you don't notice it. And it's, it was, it was really fun. A really fun surprise. I got delighted a bit too. Um, but then they kind of ruin it for me. Cause yeah, externally it's the Elm street house. I'm like fucking awesome. It's mm-hmm. going to be, you know, this, I remember the first time I saw it, I didn't comprehend enough of the history to get it all. But definitely the second time after seeing the series, I was kind of, she then goes inside and but inside it's still her LA house. Yeah. Which made no sense. Um, Freddie then is no longer there, even though he just got into real world. He takes the kid into his dream world. Made no sense. Gives her a cool scene again with her taking the pills. I like the idea to gradually get more and more into the dream world, crawl down through his bed and go through this shoot. The beginning bit of that. Um, I think that's a really cool idea. But it just doesn't make any sense to what they've been building to this whole movie. Yeah. You know? Are they distracted you enough? You're not noticing, or are you kind of because I had the first time. I was no, kind of I mean, care, but. I I completely once once I sort of got over the surprise of oh cool it's it's all transformed now she's Nancy. The expectation had been built and played out that she would go in her house, yep, and the final confrontation with, with Freddie would be played out as it would be in the movie in yep. the original house. You want like a mom in there cooking food in the kitchen. Yeah, you want thought, Johnny Depp upstairs listening well, to the music. Well, I thought there'd be some kind of... Tie-in. Yeah, tie-in to that. Um, well, go back because and like, it, it do felt, the first scenes in Nightmare on Elm Street or do something like replicate an actual full scene or something yeah, you know, yeah. with a new twist with this Demon Freddy, something like that, you know? Yeah. They're probably just going to fold the sets again for the, <laughs> the original house. Because I thought it would play out like that scene when she brings Freddy into the real world. Yeah, uh, in Nightmare on Elm Street, and they'd sort of have a little chase around. Um, yeah, it, ma- it makes no sense. It so, no sense. so that was slightly disappointing, I think, purely because the expectation had been built up. Yeah, what I said. Well, I'm just panning myself in the cheek. That's what everything they're doing is pointing to. So it is a real robbery, I think, when mm-hmm. they take that away from you. And instead, what we get, as we said before, is her going for the shoot, turning into what looks like a sort of Disney Universal fun ride with water features and stuff and that which looks like she's going through his boiler room so like okay she's going to go into the boiler room and then it comes out of a huge Freddy face (laughs) weird matte painting Freddy face in a way that only a 94 movie with not enough money could do Um, and then falls in some of the like probably the worst one of the worst shots, I think, in the whole series is her falling into the kind of the one that's like ancient Greece. Yeah. yeah. And there's a bat thing flying for the air. That's and it's right, meant yeah. to be this hellish ancient demon place, which I love ancient Greece. I was brought up with that with my mom. I love, I think it's very evocative. It mm. looks like Medusa's lair down there, Yeah, which I appreciate all of that. But that wasn't that long ago, ancient Greece, really. If you're talking about an ancient evil, I want it to be prehistoric. You know? yeah, yeah. I want it to be, it was around when the earth was first invented. I don't want mm-hmm. to be just from ancient Greece times, you know? Yeah, yeah. But this is one, I mean, this is the reason a lot of people hate this movie is they don't like Heather. They think it's too kind of postmodern for its own good. 
and then you get to an ending and you're you know with plinths and yeah you know just just bizarre it is like the end of clash of the titans mm-hmm. or something like that how are you doing movie did you see this coming do you think it was going to go this place um no i didn't see it coming at all because obviously as i just said that the expectation for me was that they would be back in the original film um so it was a surprise that that shot you talked about was very jarring for me because up until that point, the only bit I could probably criticize as far as effects was maybe the cloud mm-hmm. moment. And then this, and then that topped it. Yep. <laughs> it just looked so bad. It looked so bad. Um, uh, yeah. And then what do I think of that, that particular moment? I, I don't know. I, I, again, I kind of, I, I, for some reason, I mean, I was still in, entertained. I wasn't, uh, I was still invested in it and following along and kind of, I guess, contextually accepting that, okay, this is some demon lair. Like, mm-hmm. cool. This is where it's going to happen. So, yeah, I wasn't super stoked or excited about it, but I wasn't hugely disappointed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. How are you feeling, Alison, by this point? <laughs> Alison's saying she was confused. She didn't know why they were in Athens suddenly. <laughs> but then I got over it because I was still intrigued. Yeah, but you get over it because yeah, stuff is happening. Demon Freddy, who hangs out in his watery lair with a lot of fire around, mm-hmm. and then whenever he sees fire, he's scared of it. Interesting decision for your home decorating yeah, to yeah. hang out with lots of fire when it's your yeah. mortal enemy. Um, yeah, just weird. You get a sort of chase, like they get chased around a lot here. Um, they bring snakes back in. They like to bring snakes into this series quite often. Um, they also bring yeah the proper tongue gag in as well, which is a very strange shot because he, he has an elongated tongue that goes around her face. Um, which is always a little creepy because you're bringing in the sexual element of Freddy. And then they cut to a shot of it around her boobs. Did you notice mm-hmm. that for a second? But then you cut up and, and there's none around her boobs. There's no way it ever would have got around her boobs because yeah. it's just around her face. And it's a very weird, it's a very weird cutaway shot. It feels like something they definitely decided afterwards, oh, we should have that shot as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, man. Like this whole ending, I, I've gone along with it for years. Coming back to it now, I'm kind of pissed off with it, to be mm-hmm. honest. I'm kind of... It's really going to the Hansel and Gretel thing. It feels just like Wes Craven to me. Like from the interviews yeah. I read with him when he was alive and saw with him, he's very, you know, he's very well read. He loves ancient Greece. He loves all these classic fairy tales. He, he's very studious about mm-hmm. where these stories come from. And it felt like someone who is, and he is an intellectual man. I've heard people criticize this film for being, as we said earlier, pseudo intellectual. None mm-hmm. of it really makes sense. It's kind of pretending to be smart, but it's not actually smart. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of see what they're saying, you know, in ways. I'm fine with it, like I say, up to a point because I'll just go along with the weird logic of it. But when you get to this, I'm just... If you're going to do this, it's got to be terrifying, you know? Yeah, You yeah. need to play him like he is Medusa and really make it scary. And I don't mean the remake Clash of the Titans Medusa. I mean, <laughs> who's sexy, which was very confusing. Um, but just, yeah, terrifying. Yeah. And instead, Demon Freddy is still a bit jokey and he's still being Freddy. Um, and I expected by this point, if we're going to get Demon Freddy, if we're going to go to his lair, he has to be something different, you know? Yeah, he has yeah. to act in a way we haven't seen him act before. Um, 
So I'm just, I guess I'm just kind of not buying it. I either want f- old Freddy from the first one and I'm cool with that, but do it in the old Elm Street house or I want something new that just gives him a whole different feel. Yeah. And I mean, again, it's that kind of set up an expectation. You know, Robert Englund has the line when Heather calls him about um, having nightmares and he, and he says, you know, is it a darker? Yeah. Uh, is that what he says? Darker... More sinister, Freddy. Yeah. So there's an expectation that that's what you're gonna get, but um, but this is the problem. He is darker than the last three, four films that we saw. He yeah. is not darker than the first Freddy that we saw. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. He sort of sits in between. He's contextually darker than where we ended up, but not where we began. And it's interesting, also, just thinking about sort of this pseudo intellectualism, and you know, I wonder if if a part of that is Again, this idea uh, of Wes Craven, whether for for himself or his own ego, trying to kind of have a sense of reclaiming his work and his creation and and therefore trying to put his intellect and thought into it because it had veered so far the opposite way and become quite cartoonish and, and silly and... Um, I thought, so but, I wonder if there's like a bit of that sort but of the intent. problem is in doing so he accidentally makes it a bit more cartoonish and silly again well yeah it kind of goes in a yeah which is ironic but yeah I think this is definitely his attempt like say to claim back I think it's definitely his attempt to do a full stop a true full stop on mm-hmm. this because he never got to do it the first one he wanted the first one to be it and to have a different ending Bob Shea producer made him do a different ending that left it open I really feel it's hard for them to get out of this one like this is very much well Freddy is dead He's this demon thing though now. Weird convoluted story. Mm-hmm. And a real full stop of we have killed him and then this script is self-contained literally by the end of the movie. It's very... How you follow this film? I don't fucking know. You know, in regular canon of Freddy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I definitely think it's a, a, a purposeful move from him to mm-hmm. be what you can't follow on from this. Yeah. What are you going to do now? Um, and then as the demon burns up, it becomes an actual demon. It's Freddy burns up. becomes a proper demon horns and stuff bulging eyes bulging eyes i didn't like that partly the effects are bad they weren't great at the time yep. either partly i just don't like this oh wow it's a demon okay great it's almost just unimaginative to me i don't like it how would you have chosen to end it again i would have done completely different you know but if we were going with the lair thing i don't know but i wouldn't i would have kept it i wouldn't have had him turn into a demon i just don't mm-hmm. like that there's so many horror films and bad horror films where the, the creature dies and it's and you see for a split second oh it was a demon all yeah, along. Yeah. It's like, well, that doesn't add anything to the story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't add anything at all. It just makes it less scary because now I see what a stupid demon looks like with its dumb horns. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's almost it's almost on par with uh, sperm demons. No. no not I mean, quite no, as bad as sperm no, no, not, not a bad bit in the sense of yeah. revealing well, something like from, that. Yes. You know, why not just put him in the furnace and that's it? Yeah. Yeah. Because then it's showing, because that's definitely showing this is his real form. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, well... I would yeah, rather, yeah. If, if it was just this ancient demon, never see its real form. Yeah. That's spookier. Spermy sure. or otherwise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I really like the ending though. I do like the last scene. They, they win me back again with them falling out of the bed. It's a little rushed and weird because she's reading this horrible opening to a film to her little kid. He goes, read me some, read me some. She's like, there was a like steely claws. <laughs> and actually, you know what I just thought of? To, to continue with her reading that story, she would eventually reach the point where she reads to her son how her his dad died. was yep. killed. <laughs> yep, his father died. Yeah. Yep. Fuck. Yeah. 
they have a special relationship that's intense <laughs> um, but i like it poetically and i like mm-hmm. it as a way out i think it's nice and peaceful oh, the cheesy music's at the end a bit too much now yeah that we're out of that era but yeah they kind of went me back in those final moments again yeah and there's like a nice kind of genuine honesty and feel uh when she reads Wes craven's thank you and yeah. and there and there is a nice finality to that and their kind of journey from the first one her to the third and then working together again on this yeah you know i felt <laughs> if it was weird i felt a closure in that yeah of him like thinking of for doing it that last time it's like definitely cool. it, it feels great. more like a trilogy as well with those three in a way, yeah which we'll might get to at the end when we pick our order of films mm-hmm. now one last little bit of tidbit of information so there's there's a lot of earthquakes as we said um but the earthquake sequences in the film were filmed a month prior to the 1994 northridge earthquake which killed 57 people injured 5,000 more and cost 20 billion dollars in property damage in la um though very tragic the earthquake struck two weeks before the end of new nightmares filming so craven um that contradicts what they just said <laughs> For a month prior blah, blah, blah. anyway so craven sent out a second unit to film footage of actual quake damage areas of the city making the earthquake a more significant element than was originally planned oh wow because i was wondering that bit where there's like a collapsed building yeah i noticed it this time because i read that bit of info last night when i was doing research and this time i really noticed yeah there's about four shots where mm-hmm. there's some definite just like here's a destroyed building to subconsciously yeah. get in there um which definitely helps it so that's kind of a sad tragic coincidence that helped the yeah the shoot really so alex do you want to ask allison first (laughs) allison (laughs) at the end of the podcast we like to ask people uh if they would recommend this movie as a new person tonight on elm street i can't even imagine what it's like coming in on this one first yeah that's crazy so weird um but would you recommend that anyone watch wes craven's the new nightmare you would? Yeah. She said yes. Uh, can you say why? Briefly as possible, because no one can hear you. <laughs> Entertaining. Wasn't hard to follow, having not seen any of them. Entertaining, not hard to follow, in case anyone didn't hear that. Yeah, no one can hear her. Um, okay. Yeah. So you just found it a fun movie. It wasn't spooky. And she said she was really scared. <laughs> <laughs> I think she wet herself at some point. Yeah, she definitely wet herself. Definitely wet herself. Yeah. Okay, all right. We're making a note of this, Alison. <laughs> So you come on the podcast, we're just going to be mean to you. This is how it's going to go. Okay, so we've got one recommendation from Alison. And that's interesting because Alison hasn't seen any of these films. And definitely from like, I was, you know, this was my era of getting into horror. So it's definitely a different era for Alison. So good voice, good opinion. And she did also hear our previous podcast on... She did. Uh, she, on Freddy's she, Dead. She didn't get to see Freddy's Dead, but she heard us summarize <laughs> yeah. it. So that was quite a job. Brave jump, I must say, after hearing us speak about that to yeah. jump into this film. Yeah, it's a Alex, I genuinely don't know where you're falling on this one. <laughs> so I'm interested. You've been pretty positive overall. So I'm getting a good vibe, but you didn't like something. So Alex, can you tell me, please, put me out of my misery. Do you recommend this movie? I absolutely recommend this movie. Uh, it, I had very high expectations. Well, not maybe not very high expectations, but I was very excited to see it. I really loved the its concept when I read about it. Um, yeah, and I felt having watched uh, the last few in the series, you know, I, I, I wanted something new. I wanted a new direction. Um, 
So for me, this film really hit all those points. As I've said a lot in this podcast, I felt uh, Wes Craven creatively was really uh, reclaiming his creation and really putting his stamp back on it, which I really liked. Yes, some bits were like very deliberate and clear throwbacks to the first film, but it was cool. Uh, For me, it was like, yeah, he, he sort of regained that ownership, but he did it in the kind of craziest, most brave way that, yeah, for its time was, was incredibly inventive and, and ahead of its time. Um, so for that, for that reason alone, um, I definitely recommend it. Okay. Okay. I'm interested when we get to the end of our podcast to see where it falls mm-hmm. in your favorite lineup. Yeah. Um, so like I said, this, this, I've seen this film so many times. I really have. I used to be crazy in love with it. The last time I saw it was last year. I showed it to Katie. I was kind of less in love with it at that point. So I was worried going back today. I wasn't sure where I was going to fall. I wasn't sure if the things that used to love about it had aged too badly, if the postmodern stuff was irrelevant now because everything's postmodern. So it's hard to judge it just as what it is now, you know, coming mm. to it now. Um, but I still really love this movie. I really do. I think Heather Lamkamp is great. I think John Saxon is superb. I think Freddy is not as good as he was in the first one, but I think he's the best he's been probably since then. Um there's tons of just fun ideas with this film. I think the postmodern aspects of it are, sure, way over the top and don't make sense some of the times, but really enjoyable, particularly if you have seen you know, the first film, if you've come through the torturous uh, next few installments, particularly <laughs> part five and things like that, then this is a good payoff for me. And I know a lot of Freddy fans didn't agree. A lot of Freddy fans, when they finally got this new one three years later after part six, they weren't satiated with it, you know? But for me, I, absolutely. For yep. me, absolutely. It's exactly what the series needed. It's a complete kick in the ass. And I wish other series like Halloween and Friday the 13th and Hellraiser and Chucky could be brave enough to do you know something that's crazy. And it is. It's a crazy, crazy film. Um, and I think it's important for Wes Craven. And anyone, if you enjoy Scream, you should see this film because I think it shows you the wind up to that punch. It really feels for me like a precursor to Scream. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's certainly not as expertly pulled off the Scream at mm-hmm. all. Uh, we'll we'll do our Scream retrospective at uh, some point later in the year, probably. But it's, yeah, there's so much more going on here than yeah. in Scream. Um, so I absolutely recommend this movie. I have my problems with it. I think it could be much, much better. I think the ending's a huge letdown and the more I watch it, the more I think the ending's a letdown. Um, but for all the rest of it, I'm still entertained and I've seen this film a lot of times now for 22 years. <laughs> is that right? Yes. Yes, it is. My is my math adding up? It is. Because that is terrifying. Oh, yeah. I've been watching this movie for 22 years. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. don't like it at all. When were you born? 33. Oh, fuck you. Allison was one <laughs> when I went to the cinema to see this film. <laughs> Oh, man, that makes me feel horrible. Um, this film, just for some context, cost $8 million to make. Um, none of the others would cost $8 million, so I can't compare it that way. But it was just a little bit more than Part 5, uh, which cost $6 million. It was quite a lot more than, uh, than Part 6, which cost 5 And it was a lot less than Part 4, that cost $13 million. But this movie made by far the least amount of any of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. It did not do well. Um, it made $17, $18 million, which is still a good return. That's crazy. This is just box office. These movies obviously make most of their money on DVD at the time, VHS at the time, stuff like that, um, and syndication. But you're talking about previous movies made, you know, $25 million off of a $2 million budget, $50 million off of a $13 million budget. This one just made $18 million off of an $8 million. It wasn't enough for them. They weren't happy with that. 
So it took nine years until the next time that Freddy was put on screen. Nine, nine, long, long years. Um, and the next time that would happen would be in 2003's Freddy versus Jason, which is exactly what we'll be story. watching next week. Please watch these films along with us. Please join us next week as we get into that. We're into the last couple. Can you believe it? We're on the home stretch. Freddy v. Jason and then yeah. the reboot. I'm going to be sad to see the man go, but I feel I feel I got him back a little bit. You got him in this, back? In this film? Well, we'll see, sure. I'll be interested you see feel about him with Freddy vs. Jason. And then, yeah, the reboot, obviously, no more Rob Englund. So you only have one more Rob Englund performance to enjoy or cower from, depending on how it goes. <laughs> yeah. uh, we are a, a production company. Uh, we make movies. You can go check it all out if you head over to We Are Tessellate. We Are Tessellate. That's with two S's. Two L's. Yes. I want to say two T's for a second there. That is incorrect. Two S's, two L's. <laughs> Have I been saying it wrong for 12 months? <laughs> uh, Wearetessellate.com. You can branch out to all of our podcasts. We have a weekly podcast just called Geeks where we talk about Geeks. our topical games and movies every week. Uh, we also have some other horror retrospectives. We've done Friday the 13th. Uh, if you listen to this in the future, we might have done other ones. Scream. I want to do Scream now. We'll do Scream. There's only four of those. That's yeah. an easy one. Um, what am I talking about? You ruined my flow. We do other retrospectives. We do other podcasts. There you go. We also do uh, feature films because uh, Tesslate is a production company. Al will be directing his first feature this year. Unless you're, again, you're listening from the future, in which case. And I'm an unemployed director, so please yeah, hire me. so keep an eye out for his film Starfish. <laughs> uh, we also do shorts, web series. Uh, go on our website. There's lots of stuff about... And please subscribe to us. It helps us out on our channels on YouTube. Exactly. And and particularly on iTunes where you can subscribe to our podcasts. Send us stuff. Uh, Thank you, Alex, for joining me. You're welcome. You can uh, uh, contact Alex. At Alexander Chard on Twitter or Instagram. And you can contact me on all the social medias, Mr. Al White. We'll see you next week with Freddy vs. Jason. Until then, don't fall asleep. We're out. Geeks! Geeks!